Good morning. Eight minutes after five o'clock here on the Saturday morning show as we come your way between now and six o'clock news, taking a look at agriculture and market activity during the closing days of the week. And I thought I would start with a weather summary this morning because it seems like way too often we've had hurricanes to talk about in the morning show, and that's the case again today. But uh, I think the news is better than it was yesterday. Here's the report on Hurricane Delta. It weakened steadily during the day yesterday after turning into a corner of southwestern Louisiana, an area that's repeatedly battered by storms this year, sending residents scurrying out of harm's way and disrupting the energy production in the Gulf Coast. Delta made landfall as a Category 2 hurricane, packing maximum sustained winds of 100 miles per hour. And at 6 o'clock last evening, it hit land near the town of Creole. Within hours, its sustained winds had diminished to 75 miles per hour, and it was on the verge of being downgraded from a Category 1 hurricane to a tropical storm. The center of Delta was on track to drift across central and northeastern Louisiana during the night and this morning before moving into northern Mississippi and the Tennessee Valley. And according to the National Weather Service, rapid weakening is expected overnight and Saturday. Delta is forecast to weaken to a tropical storm and to a tropical depression today. Streets were deserted in the nearby city of Lake Charles as residents fled, filling hotels or taking shelter away from the path of Delta, which struck weeks after Hurricane Laura plowed ashore as a Category 3 storm in late August. The mayor of Lake Charles, Nick Hunter, said in this community, There are a lot of homes that were damaged by Laura, and so a lot of people are concerned about staying in that structure again. Laura, which came ashore with 150-mile-per-hour winds, is still very fresh and very raw, and I think that had something to do with more people evacuating for Delta. Schools and government offices were closed, and officials in a dozen parishes called for evacuations. Energy companies cut back petroleum production in the Gulf of Mexico by about 92%. That's 1.7 million barrels per day. That happened by midday yesterday. Delta was the 10th named storm of the Atlantic hurricane season to make a U.S. landfall this year, eclipsing a record dating back to 1916. Laura damaged tens of thousands of homes, leaving roofs across the region dotted with protective blue tarps and more than 6,000 people living temporarily in hotels. One of those people, Floria Simeon, 62 years old, and her family, 
took shelter in a hotel after leaving their home near Lake Charles two days after its electric power was restored following Laura. And she said, it's heartbreaking. My family made it out okay, so we just are going to put one foot in front of the other. And along a pasture east of Lake Charles, Addison Alford manned a mobile weather radar station that was brought in from Oklahoma because the permanent station was damaged during Hurricane Laura. And uh, one spokesperson said he and the colleague planned to ride out the storm from inside a heavy vehicle equipped with a radar dish. We're really trying to make sure the data streams stay up during the entire event. So that's the latest on Hurricane Delta coming ashore in Louisiana. And the people in Louisiana are, I would say, beginning to wonder what they've done wrong this year to deserve all this kind of hurricane-battered weather damage that uh, they'll still be cleaning up probably a month from now. But at uh, 13 minutes after 5 o'clock, we don't have a hurricane here in the Midwest and it looks like maybe Hurricane Delta will uh, weaken enough so that it doesn't hit the Midwest harvest season with a great deal of rain that would certainly park the combines here in the Midwest. So it's uh, another interesting weather morning for some people. Not so much for us. We're at 62 degrees here at my thermometer in Huntley, Illinois, and uh, going to cool down a little bit, it sounds like, as uh, winds shift to the north and uh, we get some air from Canada that will certainly cool down our temperatures here in the Midwest. But we're going to talk about color this morning and what makes leaves turn to the colors they turn to at this time of the year. That's what Jim Fazell is going to talk about. So if you've wondered why the leaves turn, stay with us. Jim Fazell will talk about that when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. I like the opening line on the notes I get from Jim Fazell for our weekly visit. His opening line, after the season of unobtrusively doing their jobs, leaves are set to go out in a spectacular blaze of color. Their final statement for 2020. And then the question, what causes the fall colors? And that's a question I've been getting in emails and by phone to uh, find out why do they do it. So, Jim, the stage is yours. It's mine. Well, thank you, Orion. And yes, the the spectacular spectacular blaze of color is about to commence. In fact, in some areas it has commenced. Uh, And why do we have this fall color, as you said? Well, it's not Jack Frost because we really have not had a, a strong or a severe frost in this part of the country, and yet the plants are changing color, the trees and the shrubs and so forth. This has to do with the plant genetics and the weather as well. Now, the colors themselves are pigments that develop or show up in the fall. Uh, the oranges and yellows are the ones we're seeing mostly right now. 
These are actually pigments called flavonoids, xanthophils, and carotenes. And they're familiar to us because the carotenes give carrots their orange color and, and flavonoids give egg yolks the yellow color and so forth. So these are not something that are not, that are not uh, familiar. Now, these are always present in the leaves these yellow and, and orange pigments, but they're hidden by the more intense chlorophyll. And actually, the physiology of the thing is that the chlorophyll absorbs the yellows and oranges and reds and blues, as a matter of fact, and that's what they use in photosynthesis. They don't use that green stuff, so they throw it away, and that's what we see. It's being reflected by the, by the, uh, leave, the chlorophyll in the leaves. Now, the short days and the cool temperatures reduce the chlorophyll production. There's not as much of it being made, so that's when the colors begin to show up. The chlorophyll isn't there to absorb the colors, so they, they start to sparkle up. Things like the red buds, the larch, the hickories, uh, all turn hues of yellow, orange, and gold. Now, the reds and purples, the deep reds and purples, like we see in the new selection, the Fremonti maple selections, these are actually anthocyanins. These are sugars. Now they're not very much there's not very much of that in the in the leaf until the chlorophyll begins to decrease. Uh this also will mask the yellow colors because it's a pretty these are pretty intense colors, although they may mix in some uh in some leaves so that you have a little of the orange and a little of this deep red as well. They increase in the fall and the bright days as they're developed by the um, by the chlorophyll in the leaves, and they accumulate in the leaves on cool nights. Now we've had fairly nice cool nights. When we see um, uh, this beginning to develop, in fact, one of the first things we see develop is the bright red of poison ivy. Now, as you know, we were up to uh, the Kickapoo a couple of weeks ago, and as we were driving up there, we saw along the roadside these vines climbing up trees along the road and in the wooded areas up there, absolutely spectacular red. And if you stop and look at this, you're going to find out that you don't want to touch that because that's poison ivy. It makes one of the most beautiful fall color displays of any of our plant materials. But red maples and burning bush are doing the same thing right now. These can be more intense on the sunny side of the tree because the, um, the uh, uh, pigments are being developed as sugars. Uh, and you can have uh, maples that are red on one side and yellow on the other side. Now there's another thing that we don't really consider as to being uh, um, a pigment. But this is a deep brown. These are tannins. Now, these begin to appear particularly in some kinds of oak trees, but in other trees as well. Tannins are deep brown in color, and they accumulate in the leaf when the chlorophyll disappears. Now, just because the leaf is brown doesn't mean that it's dead. In these cases, this, this pigment actually develops in the leaf and gives it this color. Now, they could have a tinge of red with them, as they do in red, maple, in, uh, red oak trees, and, or they may just be plain brown, as they are in a lot of the oak trees. Now, tannins are familiar to us as well. These are the things that give teas some of their flavor. And tannins are also specific for certain kinds of wine. And one of the reasons they age wine in oak wood is to develop some of these tannins, which give the wine, I, I think, it's probably a little more of a bitter taste, but the taste that we, um, we normally associate with, with uh, red wines, that's the tannin that we develop in that. Now, individual plants of the same species, even though you go out and say, well, I've got all silver maples out here, not all silver maples or not all sugar maples will turn the same color at the same time because genetics plays a part in this. The individual plants all came from individual seeds, and as they develop, they develop with a little bit of different genetics in them. Some are genetically able to produce these colors. Some are genetically able to stay green and drop their leaves. 
Uh, so genetics plays a part in it. Location also affects how these plants develop. If you have a plant that really grows well during the season, it puts on a lot of leaves, it makes a lot of uh, photosynthesis, uh, these plants generally, if they, if they have a normal fall where the temperatures decrease slowly, but it's cool at night and bright in the day, uh, these plants um, uh, will grow better, will develop better fall color than a plant that's wilted all year and uh, maybe poorly grown because it didn't have enough fertilizer or something like that. A tree that grows well generally will color up better. But selections have um, uh, a bit to play in this as well. Now, the selections that we have today, many of these street trees that we get are selected varieties and actually they are reproduced vegetatively so that each one is genetically the same as the other. So we have things like the Fremonti maples, all of the certain Fremonti variety, if you get a Marmo Fremonti, all the Marmos are going to be the same and they're going to tend to, to color up the same as long as the conditions are the same. Uh, Green Mountain sugar maples, in fact, they were actually selected because they make such good color. They're all selected from one and they're vegetatively propagated, not by seed, but by taking cuttings or by grafting. So that's how they, they can be sure that in any one of these will ta uh, tend to turn the same color every year. Uh, the sight and the weather and the health of the plant, of course, I mentioned that before. Now, this season, are the leaves going to color up? Well, the best conditions we have are the cool nights, bright days with adequate soil moisture. Now, we've had cool nights, and we've had some beautiful bright days. We're still having them, but we're light on soil moisture. If we don't have enough soil moisture, these leaves may tend to wilt, and if they wilt, they don't photosynthesize, and if that doesn't happen, then some of these colors will not show up. So it would be better if we'd get a little bit of uh, this nice, warm, bright daytime, cool nighttime, but some moisture. If we could get a good inch of moisture here, that would help. But I think the trees are going to color up very nicely anyway this year. Uh, some have already colored up. In fact, we were out uh, this morning doing our early, or yesterday morning doing our early morning walking, and we noticed that some of the Fremonti maples have colored up in the last couple of days where they're spectacular. But there's some trees that are still green. So we're going to have uh, a variation in timing on these. So this, extended, this period of beautiful fall color is going to extend uh, for more than just a week or so. We may still see some showing up in, in maybe in November when the larches and weeping willows begin to color up. Actually, when a freeze occurs, instead of making for fall color, this stops the fall color because the freeze will kill the leaves. The leaves will be done with whatever they're going to do. They're going to drop off, and that will be the end of it. Incidentally, when are we going to get a freeze? We have had a freeze in some of the far outlying areas, and today, October 10th, is really a 50% chance of freeze. One year out of two, we're going to have a freeze at this time of year. Earliest date of first freeze is usually about September 10th, and the latest date of uh, of the of the freeze is usually around October 30th, 31st, Halloween. I usually figure on Halloween we're going to have a hard freeze, and we may do that this year because we're uh, shifting to cooler days, possibly an increase in moisture, but we're in for a roller coaster weather-wise. That's what we've had, and that's what we're going to continue to have. But take advantage of this wonderful fall weather we get here in the Midwest and get out and enjoy it. Time actually is short. Well, you're right, and I have to tell you, you know, they uh, when they did the landscaping on my house at Sun City here in uh, Huntley, they put one of the most beautiful multi-trunked red maples in my backyard 
on the uh, patio so that I get good shade. But uh, that is a spectacular maple tree because up in Wisconsin on the farm, I grew up with maple trees in the the woods and uh, in the uh, pastures. But uh, to have a red maple in my patio backyard is just really great, and I really enjoy it. So uh, we we want to thank the people who picked the... uh, red maple for the backyard because it's beautiful jim it is i've seen it i know i can i can uh say the same it is gorgeous it's a gorgeous tree all year round not just in the in the fall when it colors up wonderful tree maples are good trees let's hope we don't have anything come through that takes them out like it did the ash i don't think we're going to because there's a lot of people watching to make sure that doesn't happen anyway get out and enjoy the weather orion we're going to do that and tell Jane if she wants to stop by with an apple pie, I won't turn her down. So You won't? Okay. No. okay. Well, I'll give her the message, and you can be <laughs> sure she loves to make apple pies. So when she makes one, you know, we just make a trip, take, may take a trip out Huntley Way and, and drop one off for you. Well, on your way to the Kickapoo, you'll be on I-90 just about to two or three miles away. So we'll look for you, okay? Okay, Orion. Look forward That's, to it. Jim Fazell, our specialist in ornamental horticulture, here on the Saturday Morning Show. We're at 28 minutes after 5 o'clock here on this Saturday morning, 62 degrees on my thermometer here in Huntley, Illinois. And uh, as we celebrated National 4-H Week, I had the opportunity this past week to talk about and talk to one of the most interesting 4-H club members I've had the opportunity to visit with. I call it uh, one of my most challenging but fascinating interviews with a 4-H'er that I've experienced uh, during a career of doing hundreds of interviews with 4-H and FFA members. So we're going to get to that after we take a break for the news And Samuelson says, when I also talk about this 4-H lady, and then we'll talk to her and share that conversation. So this all happens when we continue with the Check on News headlines at uh, WGN Radio Chicago here on the Saturday Morning Show. It's about 25 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show, and it's time for Samuelson Says. I want to talk about this lady and then a little bit later hear her own words as she talks about her accomplishments in 4-H, an outstanding 4-H'er that we visited with during National 4-H Week. As millions of us Americans celebrated National 4-H Week a week ago, I conducted one of the most challenging interviews I've ever conducted in my long career. It was an interview with a 16-year-old lady from Illinois, Elizabeth Widener. Elizabeth is the winner of the 2021 4-H Youth in Action Pillar Award for Civic Engagement for her advocacy for pediatric cancer awareness, research, and funding, and her commitment to supporting the families of pediatric cancer patients. 
hear this story, and I quote her. She said, at age 12, she faced the overwhelming reality of a pediatric cancer diagnosis. And I quote her. She said, we were at the hospital for a long time during my first hospital stay. My family made multiple trips to the store for supplies, and I knew as soon as I got out of that hospital, I wanted to do that for other families. Elizabeth went on to say, 4-H has empowered me to grow as a leader, not only in my community and state, but on the national level, in spite of my long journey with stage 4 high-risk cancer. At the time of my diagnosis and subsequent relapses and progression, 4-H has been my constant companion, encouraging me to be who I am and teaching me to be resilient when life presented me with the toughest challenge a child needed to overcome, cancer. Those are the words of Elizabeth Widener, a true inspiration for all of us. So take what Elizabeth said and carry it out in your life. I know I will do the same in my life. A salute to a poor nature who inspires us all. That Samuelson says, a presentation of Nextar Media Group. And at 22 minutes before 6 o'clock, I decided I wanted you to hear her say what I just described as her dedication to working on behalf of children and families who are fighting pediatric cancer. So uh, we'll do that uh, when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. All week long, we have been celebrating National 4-H Week because I would guess there are several million people in America who are or have been members of 4-H clubs and who are or have been club leaders of 4-H clubs. So we have a very special person to talk to to celebrate National 4-H Week, a young lady from Effingham County, and she has won a National 4-H Award for her efforts to improve her community and help families impacted by pediatric cancer. Elizabeth Widener, 16 years old, of Dieterich, is the winner of the 2021 4-H Youth in Action Pillar Award for Civic Engagement. That's a long title, but good morning, Elizabeth. (laughs) It's nice to have you on the air with us today. When did 4-H start for you? At what age? I was nine years old, so it's been a while. I'm 16 now. And do you remember your first project in 4-H? I'm not sure about my very first one, but the one that really stands out to me was public speaking. Um, I did that for the very first time and I've been hooked since then it's something that I've always really enjoyed and I've been to state multiple times now 
Well, you and I have that in common because that's what got me into a career that uh, I celebrated my 60th anniversary a couple of weeks ago at WGN Radio in Chicago, and it was public speaking that got me going. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. And it's scary, too, isn't it? I remember, I think my knees were really shaking the first time I got up in front of a group and talked to them. So let's talk about the health situation that has really involved you in 4-H. Talk to me about that and uh, what is the concern. So about five years ago now, I was diagnosed with stage 4 high-risk neuroblastoma. So it's been... A pretty long road but my 4-H family has helped me throughout it and um, I just really appreciate that. So what have you done to further that part of your 4-H program? What do you do? Do you go around the country and speak and what else? So yes I will for for this 4-H award I will be talking to multiple clubs and um, states about my journey and about my um, civic engagement pillar and um, about my project. But since this year is a little different, I will probably doing, be doing most of it for, with Zoom calls or phone interviews or pre-recorded videos. So it's going to look a little different, but I'm still really excited. Well, you should be, because as I understand it, Elizabeth, you have traveled to various cities, and uh, have you gone to our nation's capital to talk to the members of Congress? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've uh, lobbied on Capitol Hill, um, speaking about childhood cancer and about the hardships that I've had to go through as a childhood cancer um, warrior. Do you have one bit of advice you give to families who have the situation that you have in your family? I would just have to say to keep fighting. That's one thing that has really just kept me going is that I have to keep fighting for the next person who is diagnosed or uh, for my family in general because I, I just I can't leave them. I have much more to hopefully accomplish in the future that not my time to leave yet so what was your sae or what i called my ffa project i was in the um i did service learning so it again was with um my service or with my amenities project that i did with 4-h but it was also a little bit more talking about the other leadership roles and um volunteer roles that i um have done how helpful has your family been in your 4-H club membership? Oh, they've been super supportive of everything that I have uh, tried to accomplish with 4-H and all of my projects. My mom has really helped me with um, my public speaking, with my um, speeches for public speaking, and she's helped me try to memorize it and um, with different gestures and try to get different props. And so I really thank her for that. And my dad, um, even though I don't really do electricity and wordworking anymore, my dad tried to help me with that whenever I was younger. You mean you are an electrician and you wire houses and things like that? Oh, most definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) So my family are also really big um, pig showers. We show 
Um, we raise and breed our own pigs and have been doing that for a long time now. And um, so that's just been a family project that all of us have been in on. And um, we just actually had baby piglets about uh, two months ago now. So they're still in our barn and we're hoping to take them to auction. And do you go to county fairs and do you go to the state fair to show and uh, win a few blue ribbons? Well, at the state fair, we we haven't won um, blue ribbons yet, but we have gotten in the top five, so that's pretty awesome. And yeah, at the county fair, um, my brother has done pretty well. He's gotten um, grand champion gilt and barrow, and I've gotten... Uh, pretty far up there as well. I can't remember what's the highest I've gotten. But. Well, you are an outstanding story for 4-H, but you're also involved in FFA, I understand. Yep. Yeah. Since my freshman year. Well, we could talk for an hour, I think, but uh, our time is up, and I can't thank you enough, Elizabeth, for your work for pediatric uh, cancer children and uh, for what you have done with your 4-H career in encouraging other young people to join and become members of 4-H, a real tribute for this National 4-H Week. Our visit with Elizabeth Widener, 16 years old of Dietrich, Illinois in Effingham County here on the Saturday Morning Show. Ten minutes before six o'clock, it is 62 degrees on my thermometer here outside the studio in Huntley, Illinois. And I just realized I haven't done what I normally do on Saturday morning, and that's covered the latest uh, COVID-19 situation. But here is the count. Worldwide coronavirus cases cross 36,850,000, and the death toll from the coronavirus stands at a million sixty seven thousand people those are numbers that i don't think any of us are happy about but i have to say i've known a lot of 4-hers in my life and a lot of ffa members and i've been members of uh, 4-h and ffa as a kid And I can't recall an interview that meant as much as the interview with Elizabeth Widener that I shared with you just a minute or so ago. Outstanding young lady who is fighting a battle that could be terminal with pediatric cancer. She's 16 years old, as we mentioned in the conversation. And God bless her and her family. And uh, thank her for sharing the story with me about pediatric cancer, particularly in children. A couple of other stories to uh, cover here this morning. A story that didn't make me happy this week, but the U.S. <clears throat> the U.S. government has indicted six more chicken industry executives over alleged price fixing broadening antitrust prosecutions in its probe of the $65 billion 
poultry sector. In June, the Justice Department indicted Pilgrim's Pride Chief Executive Jason Penn and three others in its first charges in the criminal probe involving broiler chickens, which account for most U.S. chicken produced in this country. Court documents filed on Tuesday show that former Pilgrim's Pride CEO William Lovett has also been indicted. Lovett could not be reached for comment at midweek, and the company's spokesman did not respond to a request for comment. The indictments come after grocers, retailers, and consumers filed a lawsuit accusing Pilgrim's Pride, Tyson Foods, and other poultry processors of conspiring to inflate prices for broiler chickens. Chief of the Justice Department's Antitrust Division, Macon Delraham, uh, said that executives who choose collusion over competition will be held to account for schemes that cheat consumers and corrupt our competitive markets. Pilgrim's Pride, mostly owned by Brazil-based meatpacker JBS, last month said that Penn left the company and was replaced as CEO by Chief Financial Officer Fabio Sandri. The court documents allege that industry executives conspired to fix chicken prices from 2012 through 2019. Uh, The executives at Purdue Farms uh, declined to comment on the story, but it's a story the Justice Department is going to continue investigating, and I'm sure we'll be getting more developments on that story. Also on stories this week, Brazilian farmers have sold almost 53% of their current soybean crop, and that's more than twice as much as the 25.4% historical average. Prices are encouraging producers to sell their produce in advance, and considering estimated output of 132 million tons, Brazilian farmers, and remember, they're opposite us in the season because they are starting to plant right now while we're harvesting our crop here in North America. But uh, Brazilian farmers who are starting to plant now have sold an estimated 69.8 million tons of the crop they're planting now that uh, is just getting started to grow. But uh, Brazil is now the number one soybean exporter in the world, and uh, it doesn't look like they're backing away from the production of soybeans in that South American country. And then one other foreign story this week that caught my eye that uh, comes from France. The uh, French government has said it is going to... uh, ban the use of glyphosate, which is the uh, product that uh, sold as Roundup by Monsanto before it was purchased by the uh, folks at uh, Bayer. 
And so uh, that continues to be a story because there are thousands of lawsuits filed here in this country. So this week, France's Health and Environment Agency announced restrictions on the weed killer glyphosate in farming, but they did stop short of a full ban in the European Union's top agricultural producer. The new rules set out uh, Friday are part of a push by the French government to phase out glyphosate by 2021, and they reflect a global debate about the safety of the weed killer. President Macron of France in 2017 pledged to end glyphosate use in France within three years, but his government later said it would take into account whether other solutions existed to control some of the weeds that are controlled by the glyphosate. In a decision on the main farming and forestry uses of glyphosate, the regulator in the country said the weed killer would no longer be used in alleys between vines and fruit trees or in crop fields that are plowed. So one more move against glyphosate as a product that farmers in France can use and that farmers here in the United States still use. So that's something else to keep track of because we do need the technology that has enabled us to produce crops without uh, further damage to the environment. And so we'll have to keep an eye on that story as we continue. We're coming up to uh, two and a half minutes before news at six o'clock here on WGN Radio. And uh, tell you what, I have really missed being in Madison, Wisconsin this week because I should have been there to cover World Dairy Expo, an event I've covered for the past 30 years or so. But again, no World Dairy Expo just as there has been no farm progress show, no Husker Harvest Days, and just as there will not be a real convention of the National FFA later this month in Indianapolis. It's all because of the pandemic, and it has caused a lot of virtual presentations of events that we always attended in person and always enjoyed the opportunity to visit with dairy uh, exhibitors at World Dairy Expo in Madison. Uh, Do you realize in the uh, time that the World Dairy Expo has been around, about 62,000 people from around the world come to Madison, Wisconsin every year in October for the biggest show in the dairy industry. But it didn't happen this year, just as Farm Progress Show, Husker Harvest Days, and all of the other events.